This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for January 14th, 2021. Malware in an Apple script goes undetected for years, why some people get packages they didn't order from Amazon, and a history of iTunes and the Apple Music Store. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing just fine, and we were talking a while before recording, and this is one of the things that makes you happy, that we've found new macOS malware. I don't mean it makes you happy, but this is your, you know, the real work that you do is looking at malware. This new malware that's been discovered is really interesting because it uses Apple scripts, and it's avoided detection for five years. Yeah, we don't often see malware that really does much with Apple script, right? (laughs) Apple script is uh, a... A scripting language that's been around on the Mac for a very long time, um, but most of the time malware doesn't um, doesn't typically leverage Apple scripts. Um, if they do, sometimes what we'll, we'll see is, for example, a shell script, um, which is sort of like running terminal commands uh, on your Mac that might call some Apple script from the command line. So it might kind of sort of use Apple script in that way, but it's very rare that we actually see like a compiled Apple script application that is malware. And this is distributed, well, as a Trojan horse, as is often the case. It's been in the wild since at least 2015, disguised in pirated, cracked games, software such as League of Legends and even Microsoft Office for Mac. Right. And, you know, this is actually very common. Trojan horses are really the the main way that malware gets distributed on the Mac. And um, most often, as we've mentioned many times, Flash Player tends to be the thing that gets Trojanized, right? Or that malware pretends to be. So you'll download something that claims to be Flash Player, which, of course, as we've mentioned recently, is no longer getting updated. So you should never be downloading Flash Player. Not only is it no longer being updated, we're recording this on the 13th. And as of January 12th, Adobe has blocked all Flash content, so it simply can't work anymore. Right, yeah. They they had been sort of planning some things for a while um, as part of their phasing out and shutting down a Flash. And so, yes, if you if you have a recent version of Flash, then it it will refuse to run, basically, now. So, okay. And it's a good idea, if you have Flash Player on your Mac, to uninstall it. We have an article on the Intego Mac Security blog, and I'll link in the show notes, how to uninstall Flash Player. Definitely recommend that. Uh, if, if you have a recent Mac, there's a very good chance that you don't even have Flash Player. If you have an older Mac or if you have uh, upgraded your operating system many times and then maybe transfer the contents of that Mac over to a new one that you bought, there is a chance that you could have some old cruft from a, an old version of Flash Player that might still be installed. So it's definitely worth it. If you're not sure if you have it, um, it doesn't hurt to download and run the uninstaller. Uh, if there is any trace of it, it'll take it off of your system. So what's so special about this new malware? So th- uh, this is called OSA Miner, 
And just the fact that it is using Apple script is one of the unique things about it. Um, but it, it's mostly targeted uh, communities in China and the Asia Pacific region. One thing that's worth mentioning about this is that it seems to primarily be interested in mining for cryptocurrency, in this case, Monero. Um, and so it's, it's a mining Trojan, um, and it, it's got a somewhat complex architecture. Um, it uses a, a run-only Apple script to make it difficult for people to uh, see what it's actually doing. Um, if you, in certain cases, you can open an Apple Script application with the Apple Script script editor, and and see actually what that what the code is behind it. Um, with a read-only or run-only app built in with Apple Script, you can't see those details. It's much more difficult to to decompile it and find out what it's actually doing. Um, it, there's also uh, persistence, uh, meaning that it will run itself every time that you restart your computer. Um, so it's in several ways, it's similar to common, fairly common malware, except that um, except for the fact that it's actually using Apple Script, which is which kind of a novelty. It's very uncommon. So we've mentioned recently a couple of crypto mining malware. See, can we even call it malware if it's not doing anything malicious? Uh, it's stealing your CPU cycle. It's using your power. But like adware that just would display things, um, it's not actually doing anything to damage your computer. Um, I would argue that uh, a cryptocurrency miner can potentially cause damage to your computer in, in a physical way. If your computer is uh, is running hot because of a cryptocurrency miner, um, that can potentially cause damage to, to physical components in your computer, um, especially if you already are in a hot environment. Um, you know, that, that can cause overheating. Overheating can cause all sorts of issues. Um, it's probably not incredibly likely that it's going to cause physical damage, but in certain specific cases, it could theoretically cause damage to your computer. Um, also, I mean, just the fact that it's going to slow down your computer and make it not run very well, um, is another thing that is a common trait of malware of various kinds. Um, and one could argue that, you know, a lot of adware um, easily falls into that classification of malware. It's got persistence methods. Uh, it makes sure that it's running every time your, your Mac starts up. It runs in the background all the time, um, you know, and it's doing things that you never intended to happen on your computer. It basically, somebody else is doing something else with your computer that they're not supposed to be able to do that you didn't explicitly authorize. And that's where this is malware. In other news, there's a New York Times article that I spotted, which I kind of find interesting. And it's not because of like the schadenfreude aspect of it. Um, lost passwords lock millionaires out of their Bitcoin fortunes. Bitcoin owners are getting rich because the cryptocurrency is soared. But what happens when you can't tap that wealth because you forgot the password to your digital wallet? And it opens talking about a uh, programmer in San Francisco who has only two guesses left to figure out a password that is worth, as of this week, about $220 million. Essentially, he's got a certain type of hard drive that only gives him three tries to enter his password. It contains the private keys to a digital wallet that holds more than 7,000 Bitcoin. Bitcoin's around $30,000 today. We talk about passwords a lot, about the importance of secure passwords, but... 
it's the importance of not forgetting your password. Now, the guy probably didn't use one, two, three, four, five, six. Did he use a combination of a name and a birthday and a place and a fictional character and all the things that sometimes people use? Or did he use random characters, in which case he's never going to remember it unless he stored it in a password manager? Um, he stored it in an encrypted note of some sort, or he's actually printed it out and put it in a safe deposit box. Uh, yes, this is actually a fairly common thing, I think, um, you know, where somebody has, you know, mined some cryptocurrency or maybe they, you know, bought some at some early point and now it's worth a ton of money and they just don't have access to it anymore. Maybe it was on a hard drive that crashed or maybe they, you know, forgot the, the password to their computer or to their hard drive. Uh, and um, the, what's unique about this article is that I've never heard of anybody, you know, missing out on hundreds of millions of dollars because they forgot a password that, you know, allowed them to get into their cryptocurrency wallet. Well, he's not alone. The article says that of the existing 18.5 million Bitcoin, around 20% currently worth about $140 billion appear to be in lost or otherwise stranded wallets. Now, I was informed before the show that there's about a half a trillion dollars in Bitcoin. Um, so 20%, yeah, that comes to be about that. But that's a lot of money. Apparently, there are companies that will do data um, recovery on devices, and it there are even hypnotists that work with people who've lost their passwords to get back their Bitcoin. Wow. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I, when you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, you got to do what you got to do to try to get that back, right? If there's any chance of recovering that kind of money, I, I, I don't know. I've never seen a hypnotist before. I'm not sure. That Even I ever... if you're talking about thousands of dollars. I mean, there's another one in the story about someone who lost 800 Bitcoin, which today is worth $25 million, when a colleague reformatted a laptop that contained the private keys to a Bitcoin wallet in 2011. Yeah, I mean, it's like with anything, you've got to be careful, you got to back up your stuff, you know, use Intego personal backup and time machine or whatever you want to use, but keep your stuff well backed up. And, uh, you know, be be careful about stuff like this. You you know, if, if you're talking about money finances, you need to be very careful about how you handle that, right? If you had a, a good backup and stored in a secure location, um, you can have a, another copy of that wallet, um, you know, and uh, it sounds like this guy did not. Okay. Have you ever gotten Amazon packages that you didn't order? Um, you know, not that I can think of. I, I have heard of this happening, though. Yeah, we have an article from, uh, looks like NBC Channel 4 in Washington, D.C., talking about a woman who has received 17 Amazon packages since October. She didn't order any of them. Some of them include cheap things like scissors, a foot cushion, and an <laughs> eyebrow trimmer. And one of them actually contained a steam iron. And so this is something called brushing, and I wasn't aware of this. Essentially, you know how on Amazon, whenever you look for anything sort of basic. You get a thousand results from companies. Mm -hmm. They're all Chinese companies. They're all using the same pictures for everything. And the only way they can differentiate themselves is by having good reviews. And so what they do is they find names and addresses of real people. They create accounts with those people's names and addresses. They're not taking their credit card number. Um, the sellers are actually paying for these objects to be sent to these people and delivered. 
then they can go into the accounts and write five-star reviews that Amazon will label as verified purchase. This is a really serious problem, and it has been for a long time with Amazon. And there's there's kind of multiple problems here. One is that, of course, anybody can write fake reviews. Amazon doesn't actually require you to have made the purchase on Amazon to review a product. So for example, if uh, you bought some piece of electronics at, at a, you know, at Best Buy or Fry's or wherever your local electronics store might be, if you then go on Amazon, you can write a review and they, they won't, uh, show it as a verified review, but you can nevertheless submit a review and other people can read it. Amazon has the system where they will show you whether something is a verified review. And that means that Amazon uh, knows that you made this purchase and therefore you get like an extra little badge that will be shown to people when they look at your review. So it gives a lot more credibility to that review. Uh, and so this idea of brushing means that basically somebody just finds um, a name and address online. They create a fake Amazon account and they send a product to that person and they don't really care whether that person ends up with a free product because now they get the benefit. That is the seller gets the benefit of having a verified review that comes from a different name. Um, right. The value for the seller is having a review that they can say is just gr the greatest pair of scissors I've ever bought or, <laughs> you know, the greatest iron. And since so many people judge Amazon items by reviews or by accumulated reviews, um, this is really important. Now, we have an article on the Intego Max security blog that I wrote about two years ago. Um, how to spot fake product reviews. And for Amazon in particular, uh, there's a website called Fake Spot. If you go there and enter an Amazon URL or an Amazon ID number for a product, um, Fake Spot will examine the reviews and they'll examine the way they're written, how long they are. Um, they have a, a really complex algorithm. And you'll find a number of things where, in the article, I have some screenshots. One comes up as 90% with a, an A grade. Another one comes up at 60% real reviews with an F grade. So you can easily see whether people have been gaming the system or not. Interestingly, um, you can even uh, search things like TripAdvisor. And I found that Stonehenge, you know, the big stone circle in <laughs> England, gets an A raid for honest reviews. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> Stonehenge <laughs> is legitimately an interesting place to go. Yeah. Now, the, th the thing to remember is this is an identity theft. As you said earlier, these are names and addresses that are online. They're not stealing your credit card. But it is manipulation that Amazon needs to deal with. It's very difficult for Amazon to deal with something like this. I, I guess one of the few things that I can think of that Amazon could try to do is maybe uh, if you already have an Amazon account with your name and your address, maybe they could compare that. With, so when somebody else tries to sign up with a new Amazon account with the same name and same address, that Amazon could sort of uh, say... Uh, hey, we need to to do some additional things to verify that you're really who you say you are because we we found an existing account in our system with that information. Um, maybe that could be something that they do. Um, in any case, um, I definitely recommend FakeSpot. They actually have an iOS app, which is what I usually use rather than the website. And um, it makes it very easy when you're browsing Amazon, even in the Amazon app, um, you can send things to FakeSpot 
And, uh, and if it hasn't been analyzed recently, it'll go through the analysis. And one of the things that it actually does is it looks at all the reviews written by each of those accounts that wrote a review for this product. So if you have a lot of these accounts that are just being created for the purpose of writing fake reviews, it's going to become very obvious to an aggregator like FakeSpot that's looking, that's cataloging all of these reviews. They're going to see, um, oh yeah, that's pretty suspicious because this one account has reviewed all these other products that have a, a low rating um, in our system. So um, that's one of the ways that the algorithmic it's that's one of the ways that they algorithmically detect whether reviews are fake or not. Okay, one last warning. Don't plant mystery seeds. This comes from a Federal Trade Commission consumer information warning. Um, it's linked at the end of this article, this FTC warning. Um, apparently, a lot of Chinese sellers would send seeds for some reason. Um, so maybe this brushing tactic was to order you... I don't know, a radio, but all they really sent was seeds. They had to ship something, right? And so a lot of people in the last summer were getting these mystery seeds from China. We'll even link to the USDA's advice on uh, packages of unsolicited seeds from China. Wow. Okay. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about iTunes, 20 years old. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected in 2021. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection, Net Barrier, powerful inbound and outbound firewall security, personal backup to keep your important files safe from ransomware, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Big Sur and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. Intego, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users, made by the Mac security experts. Okay, so we had an anniversary this past weekend. January 10th was the 20th anniversary of iTunes. Now, if you're a Mac user and you're up to date with Mac OS Catalina or Big Sur, you know that you don't have iTunes anymore. What you do have is the descendants of iTunes. Um, four apps, music, uh, TV, podcasts, and books, and syncing is in the finder. And I'll link to some articles on the Intego Mac Security blog about that. But you will notice that the iTunes Store still exists. Uh, if you've got an iOS device, there is an iTunes Store app. And if you're running Windows, uh, then you certainly have an iTunes app because Apple has not split the iTunes app. So 20 years of iTunes, and I went back and I looked at the history, and it's really an interesting history when you look at the long term about how iTunes just started out as this music-playing app and became something which was really the framework for all of Apple's online sales platforms. 
Yeah, this is really fascinating to me. Um, this is a really great article, by the way. I think one of the best things that Kirk has written in recent history. So definitely do check this out. This is, it, this takes you through like the the whole history, the the origins of iTunes and everything. Um, I think uh, if if we wanted to go back a little bit further, um, there there was kind of um, this culture for a period of time where people really wanted just one hit song and they didn't really want to spend you know up to 20 bucks sometimes on a cd uh, just to get one song um and so a lot of people for a period of time were using something like napster to pirate music right just to download that one song for free and then they wouldn't be paying the artist they wouldn't uh you know be paying for the album and that was kind of a, a problem for the music industry for a period of time and so uh what Apple did, their solution was they actually went to the record labels and they said, look, we have a solution. We will offer your albums. We will you know, encourage people to buy the albums. But if they want to buy just an individual song, they can. And that way you will still be making money. And uh, instead of just not making any money at all, like people are doing right now. And um, long story short, Apple made a lot of these uh, really important deals with major record labels. And that sort of led to the beginning of the iTunes store, um, which, um, uh, of course, they, they had the iTunes app already. It went along with the iPod and all that. But the iTunes store really became a huge thing for Apple. Yeah. Uh, in the first paragraph of my article, I linked to um, a very grainy video of the original presentation of, of the iTunes app. It's really interesting to see Steve Jobs in 2001 not quite sure of himself as he would be a few years later in his presentations, kind of hesitating and clicking the wrong buttons a couple of times. He hadn't been doing this that long, um, these major keynote presentations. And uh, one of the interesting statements he, he made was, we're late to this party and we're about to do a leapfrog. And he went through, you know, looking at some of the existing apps that can play music, MP3s at the time, and talked about their features and the fact that you were you had limitations and they cost more. And here comes iTunes, boom, it's free. I like that, boom. Steve Jobs always did that, remember? Boom. Put the CD in, I click the button, boom. And he did a demonstration of ripping a CD and making playlists because all of these things were new to most people. You and I were probably doing this in 2001. I used to use Audion. Um, Audion is one of the two apps that Apple was considering buying out to create iTunes. The other was SoundJam, which is what they eventually bought. Um, I used Audion, and I liked it because you could change the skins, um, you know, the the look of the of the app. Um, so I was familiar, but he was really explaining um, all of the terms that people didn't know. So when iTunes came out, it really didn't take off that quickly, even though it was free. What happened, of course, is the iPod came out in October 2001. We'll talk about the 20th anniversary of the iPod later in the year. Um, the big difference here, uh, again, Steve Jobs was showing how you would copy a track to an MP3 player, and it was you know, it was a lot of work to do it. And with the iPod, obviously, it was all – you just connected. It would sync automatically. But what I look at mostly in this article is how the, the iTunes Store marketplace, the, the things just sort of rolled one after another. I remember an article maybe 10 years ago, I talked about iTunes being Apple's Trojan horse because it was the gateway drug to the Apple ecosystem for Windows users. 
once the iPod got big, and, and we're starting about 2005 here, um, the iTunes store started getting big. They started adding movies and TV shows and more and more. And before long, it was really the template for all of Apple's online sales. Yeah, I, I really, it essentially led to um, the App Store. In fact, originally, iTunes was uh, the App Store for iOS. Um, that's where you could find uh, apps for, for iOS. Uh, you downloaded them right through iTunes. Um, eventually, that got broken out uh, into, a, uh, into a separate app. Um, and now we have an app store for macOS um, as its own standalone app. And we also have... Um, uh, the iTunes app store and you, you don't, you no longer manage iOS apps <laughs> through iTunes. Uh, like we, in like some ways that's did. a shame because yeah, uh, if you don't have a lot of bandwidth, you could download the app and keep it on your computer and then copy it. Particularly if you have low bandwidth and big games that are multi gigabytes. Uh, when I had Victorian internet, this was a real problem. Now that I have gigabit fiber, it's not, but I really understand a lot of people who have problems with that. The other thing I liked back in the day is that it was actually possible to make backup copies of older versions of apps. You would have the .ipa file, and um, whenever you uh, downloaded a new version of an app and synchronized it, um, uh, synchronized your phone to your iTunes app on your Mac um, or, or Windows, uh, it would actually um, it would send the old version of the IPA file to the trash. And you could, um, you know, move that somewhere else and keep a backup, an older version of uh, of those apps, which sometimes actually did come in handy back in the day. If there were compatibility issues with some latest version of an app, you could just roll back. Um, that was a really handy feature back when uh, that was still possible to do. One interesting feature that Apple added 10 years ago um, in 2010 was Ping. I'm, I'm oh, yeah. curious to see how many people among our listeners remember Ping. It was a music social network described by Steve Jobs as sort of like Facebook and Twitter meet iTunes. So the idea is that you could share the music you like through this sidebar that took up a lot of space. Um, you'll notice my article has some old screenshots that I've saved over the years of various versions of iTunes. The idea was that you'd share music with your friends. You'd follow bands and artists and all that. The problem was that Facebook hadn't agreed that they would allow the sharing to go to Facebook. So basically, it was only useful with Twitter. And I don't know anyone who really used it very much. And Apple pulled it about two years later. That was Apple's only real attempt at a social network. Now, there was a thing called um, Connect a little bit later in iTunes, which was more of a one-way thing. You would just sign up for updates from artists, and, and that also disappeared. But Apple's never really gone the social networking route, and they've probably made a good decision when we see everything around social networks today. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a whole other topic that we don't have time for today, but yeah, no. absolutely. The other things that iTunes brought in was the cloud. And this was probably, for most people, their first experience of using the cloud. iTunes Match came into iTunes in November 2011. And you could play back your purchases from the cloud. You could re-download movies and music. In 2015, when they introduced Apple Music, they also introduced iCloud Music Library. And it became common for people to put their data in the cloud. Now, yes, they had iTools back in the day where you had an, was it called an iDisc, like 20 megabytes of, of storage online. But this was one of the first common uses of the cloud in a, in a sort of transparent way. You don't really see very much of the cloud activity. 
did Apple Music really come out in, in 2015? It's been a long time, actually. It's been more than yeah. five years. And so that was part of iTunes 12, which came out in October 2014. And for years, they were just updating dot versions of iTunes 12. They didn't want to go to a new major version for whatever reason. And when we got around to the music app uh, in Catalina, then it was called music and not um, iTunes anymore. But yes, it's only been five years. And Apple is, I think they're the second biggest music streaming uh, service out there after Spotify. What's interesting, when Apple Music came out in 2015, uh, Apple was able to offer this to customers in pretty much every country where iTunes was available, which was almost every country in the world. I think maybe North Korea doesn't have it. But Spotify at the time maybe only had 80 countries. So Apple was able to pick up a lot of new customers in markets that Spotify didn't have. Um, of course, it's hard to measure because Spotify has the paid uh, service and they have the ad supported service and Apple Music is only paid. It's a difficult thing to compare. But if you look at Apple's services altogether, and this is what I point out at the end of my article, 22% of Apple's revenue in the last quarter was from services. Now, all these services, well, most of these services started with iTunes. It's true that Apple Care is counted as a service, and that's a little bit different. But iTunes was the catalyst for them selling things online. While they built up the tools to deliver content through iTunes, they were building up a huge system in the background that could manage all sorts of digital content. And they're at the point now that, okay, it's 22% now. I'd say in five years, it might be 50% of Apple's income that comes from services. Yeah, that, that would actually be kind of interesting. I mean, Apple is certainly moving in a direction where they're trying to get people to subscribe to more services. They're making it more convenient to have multiple services bundled together, uh, which is something that you'd been saying for years they should be doing. So it's good to see them moving in that direction. Um, and and really now Apple is is in so many different places and so many different fields where they're actually creating their own content, uh, movies, television shows. Um, you know, Apple's expanded so much since the early days um, you know, the, and, and it all really started with iTunes and the iTunes store. Yeah. Um, they've come a long way since it was beleaguered Apple. I remember yes. you would always hear that on TV and read it in, in magazines. I remember once I was in a store um, in France as a chain called FNAC, F-N-A-C, which is they sell books and records and TVs and computers and all that. I remember listening to one of the people in the store telling someone, don't buy a Mac. Microsoft just bought Apple. And this oh, was about right. the time that Microsoft made that big investment into Apple. Yeah. And that that was about the nadir, wasn't it? Things went up after that and started moving forward. Um, but Apple is no longer beleaguered. And to me, I think iTunes is one of the main ways that they got this huge user base to work with them, to make it easy to work with Apple. To Because once you've put your credit card into one Apple service or app, that's available for almost one-click purchase anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Apple, Apple had a – I don't know whether they really saw the long-term vision on this, but it definitely was a, a brilliant strategy to at least – uh, make it easy to make purchases on an Apple platform. And, and it really forced everybody to get an Apple ID. If they wanted to buy uh, anything from iTunes, and that was like the place to go initially when it came to uh, individual digital purchases of music. You know, and now everybody has an Apple ID practically. So um, that was a good move on their part. 
Okay, well, that's enough. Um, ju- just one final point, by the way. Uh, when Apple split iTunes into the four different media apps on the Mac, uh, all these articles were saying iTunes is dead. I can't see them ever retiring the brand because the iTunes store brand is so well known around the world that no matter what the apps are called, I think they're going to keep the iTunes store as the brand for this content. Right. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what Apple ends up doing longer term with iTunes on Windows, because as you mentioned earlier, it it is still the iTunes app on Windows. Um, Yeah, it's the same as it was before the split um, on the Mac. Exactly. Yeah, because of it being a, a bit of a different situation where Apple doesn't make the operating system and so they can't really easily do this uh, sort of iPhone synchronization built into the Windows equivalent of the Finder, um, you know, it makes more sense right now, I guess, for Apple to keep it all in, in one, all in one app. Okay, that's enough for this week. Until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com. <laughs>